0: I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. As I stand in this uh, pulpit, so to speak, my heart is full. I am thankful for much. I'm thankful to be back with you this morning. Um, I'm thankful to be out of the back shack. Uh, I'm thankful for Michael who... Can pick up a passage in the middle of the week and step in because he and I are interchangeable. The word of God is not. And so I stand before you this morning to proclaim the inerrant and infallible word of God. Let's turn there now. He, 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 Would you bow with me? Father, this is your word, and this word paints a picture for us of your fullness. And so we pray that as we explore this word, you would draw us into deeper intimacy with you as we grow in knowledge of you by looking to your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. how much does jesus factor into your christianity not this how much does jesus factor into christianity how much does he factor into your christianity this is what i'm asking is your christianity christ centered or might it be some version of moralistic spirituality? It was a real question for the Colossian church. As we continue in our journey through this book, it it interacts with a problem. A problem that we'll continue to see more clearly, but we must understand the context into which Paul is writing. The church is... Combining moralism and spirituality and angel worship and a little bit of Jesus. As we consider that threat for them, we must recognize that it exists for us. Maybe I could illustrate it borrowing from Sinclair Ferguson shared this illustration. I want you to imagine for yourselves um, uh, a new bookstore. Maybe this bookstore was opening up in 1st Century Colossae. <laughs> or maybe it's just down the street in Trustful. You walk into this bookstore looking for a certain book. And as you walk in, you you see sort of uh, aisle after aisle of Books with smiling pictures of certain leaders or teachers all offering their personal spin on whatever particular relationship problem you might be struggling with or certain uh, task you need to accomplish. You walk through those aisles and you see the spirituality section. There's books on angels. There's pictures of angels, there's bracelets with angels, there's candles with angels, all meant to enhance your personal prayer experience, but you can't find the book you're looking for. So you ask the clerk, I'm I'm looking for the book on the all-sufficient Christ. So he scratches his head a minute uh It takes you to sort of a back corner because it tells you you know that that kind of book really doesn 't sell that much but let's let's let 's flip through this little section let 's see what we can find but as you look through these titles there 's still much about how to influence friends, how to handle certain tasks. You begin to wonder, where does Jesus fit in to this Christian bookstore? It's a bit of a fictional scene, but only a bit. But before we start imagining in our minds a certain brand of bookstore, I want to personalize this question before us. How much does Jesus factor in to your Christianity? Or does your Christianity look and feel a lot like moralistic spirituality? It's an important question for those of us who claim to be Christians, but the text also speaks to a confusion that exists among another group. I recently had a conversation with a new friend who... Uh, was struggling mightily with doubt. My new friend wants to be a believer, but he had been reading through uh, passages of the Old Testament, and he began to get a fragmented view of God, and he wasn't sure he liked The image he was seeing, and so he took his question to others who were certain they didn't like the image they were seeing. This text beautifully speaks to the doubter and to the confused Christian in Colossae and in Alabama. It speaks to those who are confused by this cloudy, messy version of religious Christianity that blends worldly wisdom with spirituality and angel worship and just a little dab of Jesus. It also speaks to the doubter who has a fragmented, skewed picture of God. And to both, this passage says, lift your gaze. Because to see the image of God in the world, we must focus our gaze on Jesus. Why why are images so important to us? It's uh, one of the fun things for Anna and I these days is we have two kids away at college and we get to hear of these new friends that they're meeting. And they'll describe a friend, they'll describe their personality, but... Always we want to see a picture of this new friend. Because somehow when we see a picture of the friend, it it gives us a visual image for all of the personality descriptions that we've been hearing. Guess what? The same in some respects is true of God. How often have you thought, if I could just see him? If I could just see him, then so much would come into clarity for me. Paul knows that. And so he gives clarity to the people of Colossae and to us by giving us a picture of God. Paul is saying you've heard about God, but you're confused about him. So let me show you a picture of Jesus. The image that Paul gives us of God is the image of Of Jesus. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And this picture that he gives us, it's a word picture. It's a word picture meant to uh, exalt Christ throughout. This passage speaks to the preeminence of Jesus over all things. You'll hear all things repeated over and over and over in this text starts as he tells us that Jesus, the image of the invisible God, he speaks of his preeminence by saying he's the firstborn of all creation. What is he saying there? Is he saying that Jesus was created, that there was a time when Jesus was not, and then a time when he was? No. The whole thrust of the passage is saying just the opposite of that. When he speaks of Jesus as the firstborn of creation, he's saying that jesus is the heir the firstborn in paul's day and until not all that long ago the firstborn received the entirety of the inheritance the firstborn male would receive it all paul is describing jesus as the heir of all he is first he is preeminent Was not created, he is in fact the instrument of creation. For by him all things were created. And as Paul talks about how all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, he uses a series of opposites things in heaven. And things on earth, things visible and things invisible. The opposites include everything in between. Jesus is the instrument of creation, and specifically for uh, what was all too important for. Uh, the Colossians, he was the instrument of creation for the spiritual realm when the text speaks of thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. Think categories of the angelic host. The rulers and the dominions and the authorities. They, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of speaking of the spiritual beings. Jesus is the instrument of their creation, but. It's also the instrument of creation for the physical realm which factors so prominently in our lives. Angels, babies, blades of grass, and the starry host. Jesus created them all. We tend to separate the God of the old and the Jesus of the new. But understand that when we do that, it it gives us a, a fragmented, distorted view of the Father, and it gives us a weak picture of the Son. But the Bible says that Jesus has always been. That Jesus was not only present at creation, but he was the instrument of creation. It is mysterious. And to try and work through the mechanics of creation would be to miss the point. But what the text tells us is that all things were created through him and for him. We spent time a while back in Proverbs exploring the wisdom of god proverbs nine ten tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight, much of our daily struggle in some shape, form, or fashion is the struggle to find wisdom to make sense of the world, and if we can just make sense of the world we 'll have some direction will find meaning in life. Do you want wisdom? Know God. And the text tells us that to know God the Father is to see Jesus. This is the wisdom we need to navigate the bookstores that we find ourselves walking through. It's the wisdom. That we need to navigate life. And it begins with Jesus as creator. Think about it for a moment with me. If Jesus is merely a wise teacher. If Jesus is merely a nice guy. Then we can relegate him to a back corner of the bookstore. The word of God says No. The word of God exalts Jesus Christ over all, saying he is the creator of all. So the Jesus section of the bookstore just got bigger. It just got bigger. Paul's just getting started. Because Jesus is not... Merely the creator of all things. He is the ruler of all things. He He transitions a bit in verses 17 and 18. And he, Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. It's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What do we say uh, when a leader leads well and through his leadership the group is is unified is well functioning whether it be an organization whether it be a team whether it be a family we describe this type of leader as the glue (laughs) the glue that holds the group together did you hear text is describing Jesus as the glue. Not of the family, though of the family. Jesus is the glue of all creation. He holds all creation together. He has created the visible and invisible realm for his purposes, and he is intimately involved in creation, guiding, directing, ruling all things to its glorious end. I want you to notice something very important. As the text describes Jesus as the sovereign ruler over all, it describes him as the head of the church. You see that? That Jesus is holding all things together and connected to his rule and reign over all creation is his position as the head of the church. The body of Christ sits at the center of all things and is fundamental to Jesus' holding all things together. Does that fit with your view of the church? Any of the ladies here, maybe the young girls, have a Pandora bracelet. You know what a Pandora bracelet is. A Pandora bracelet is a is a bracelet that you buy and then you put charms on, but you personalize the charms. So it's a charm that might have, <coughs> excuse me, your uh, your friend's name for the ladies, your child's name. It might have a, a picture of your pet. It might have a charm of of your favorite sport or your favorite hobby. Maybe the bracelet has a charm with a picture of the church because the church is important to you. I think too many of us consider the church as a charm on our Pandora bracelet. One of the things that describes who you are, but only one of the things describes who you are. And whether we know it or not, when we think in those terms, we're relegating the church to a position somewhere on the periphery. Important, but not central. The text is telling us that the church of Jesus Christ, and Jesus as its head, is not a charm on your Pandora bracelet. It's fundamental. Fundamental to Jesus Christ, ruling all things, holding all things together. He is the glue in the church. His body lies at the center. Friends, the Jesus section of the bookstore just keeps getting bigger. And when we see Jesus as creator, as we see Jesus as ruler, we can no longer merely look to him for relationship advice. Do you see how we're so tempted to read a certain verse in Scripture and then compare it to what some other teacher says about relationships, compare it all, and then make up our mind about what fits best? But what the text is telling us is no. Put your focus on Jesus. Jesus. And as you focus on Jesus, allow him to shape your loves, to shape your desires, to shape your worship. As he does so, as we grow in Christ-likeness, he then changes the way we view relationships. Then and only then will we see in the context of relationships the call to be Christ-like in the way we sacrifice for one another, to serve one another. Those things make no sense if we are at the center of our own universe. But if Jesus is at the center of our universe... Sacrifice, service, love is not good advice on how to enjoy relationships more. It's who we are. See Jesus as the center of all. Do, Do you see the difference? How knowing Jesus changes everything. Worldly philosophies, they're empty. They hold no power, but your existence has meaning because Jesus is the creator, because Jesus is the ruler. But I understand, as I say that, that for the doubter and even for the confused, we're still trying to... Gaze at this picture of Jesus. And why are we trying to gaze at the picture of Jesus? Because we see His power and might. But we're wondering about the expression on His face. Is the expression on His face a scowl? Basically saying, I created you, I'm ruling you, don't screw it up. That's what we want to see. On his face. That's what we want to see in this picture because that is what we're tempted to think about the Father. But Paul goes on and says, The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, and through him, he has reconciled all things to himself. Do you know what it means to reconcile? To reconcile means to bring back into right relationship. To reconcile means to restore intimacy. There was conflict, and now there is peace. And Paul is telling us that the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of God is reconciliation. I want to be as clear as possible right now what I'm about to say in my early years and I suspect for some of you either in your early years or in your current years you might be missing Jesus I I believed in a version of Jesus I did but I missed reconciliation. And in missing reconciliation, yet having a version of Jesus, what I was left with was moralistic spirituality. As for a large portion of my life, I miss Jesus, and some of you do too. But Jesus as we see so clearly in this passage, came to reveal God and to redeem sinners. And that redemption is required because we sin. Now, in some vague way, I knew about that, but here's what I missed. I missed the transition from we sin I sin. I universalized sin, but I didn't own it. And in not owning it, I missed the heart of the gospel, the heart of reconciliation. My sin and your sin is a relational disruption that causes separation. You see, our God is Holy, holy, holy. And yet when I abandon His Word, when I replace Him on the throne of my life with something lesser, anything lesser, I have chosen sin over the Lord God Almighty and I am separated from Him by a great chasm. Jesus, the instrument of creation, and the ruler of all things, saw my condition long before I did. Long before I saw a vision of him, he saw with clarity who I was, and he entered into his creation. He came because nothing in me could bridge the chasm created by my sin. You and I, we can't reconcile the relationship that has been broken with God. We cannot restore intimacy because God is the offended party. And the offended party is the one who must do this work. Jesus came. Jesus came to bridge the chasm. Jesus came to restore intimacy. Jesus came to reconcile to himself all things and included in all things was me. I missed Jesus because I missed how my sin. Had separated me from the Father. I missed the eternal separation caused by that sin. I missed the very purpose of Jesus' coming. Jesus on the cross shed his blood, taking the punishment that was due to me and due to you. And in so doing, he bridged the divide. He reconciled us to the Father. He restored intimacy. He accomplished the work of reconciliation on the cross by shedding His blood. Brothers and sisters, know this Jesus. For the doubter, struggling with a fragmented, impartial image of God, know that this Jesus fullness of God this Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God for those caught in the confusion of moralistic spirituality look at the picture that we have in this passage If Jesus is merely a good teacher then go ahead read a little Jesus read a little philosophy and figure it out but if he is creator if He is a ruler, if He is a reconciler, we have no such option, nor would we desire one. We simply receive Him, and we simply worship Him. The practical applications abound when we see that we are no longer at the center of the universe that Jesus is. It changes our understanding of union with our spouse when the world is no longer about us. It changes our selfishness in friendship when the world is no longer about us. These are all important points of practical application, but they are all derived from knowing this Jesus. And so I want to take you to what is the most appropriate and fundamental application of this text. I'd like to invite the music team to join me up front. Can I share with you what might be the most beautiful truth of this text? Most scholars believe that it is a hymn, I told you in the beginning that Hannah and I like to see the picture of the friends, of the the kids that our friends are, of the new friends for our kids. We want to see the picture because that picture just imprints an image in our minds. But do you know what imprints images on our hearts? Song. Song. And Paul is teaching truth by pointing us to an image of Jesus, giving us a hymn. How appropriate. Because the truths that we hold most dear, what do we do with them? We sing them. The point of application from this text is to know Jesus. But it is also to sing Jesus. Friends, in your car, in your home, as a family, sing Jesus. Because what we sing is what unites us. What we sing is what we hold most dear. So please stand. You and I... And our music team together are going to close this sermon in the most appropriate form of application that I know. We are going to sing the preeminence of Christ. Friends, sing to your own hearts and sing to your neighbor this image of Christ as together we sing in Christ alone.